Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Conversations with B'nai Brith. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. If you enjoy the show, subscribe to or follow Conversations with B'nai Brith wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate us, too. We always appreciate your feedback. And of course, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook for all of our latest content. Today, I'm speaking with the man who managed, among others, Herman's Hermits, the brilliant 10CC, snooker superstars Alex Hurricane Higgins and Jimmy Whirlwind White. It's Harvey Lisberg. Harvey's revealing, entertaining, and moving memoir, I'm Into Something Good, My Life Managing 10CC, Herman's Hermits, and many more, shares the highs and lows of managing rock and roll legends, snooker players and athletes, growing up Jewish in Manchester, and the complexities of the music business. Harvey, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, it's nice being here with you. Well, I just want to say I, I truly enjoyed the book. It's a great read, and it's a must-read for anyone who grew up in the golden age of the 60s and 70s rock period. Uh, the ups and downs, and sometimes uh, the chaos, all of it was fascinating. I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, now, before we get into your career, uh, I want to go back a bit earlier first. Uh, you were raised in a, a close-knit Jewish family in a, in a Jewish neighborhood in Manchester, England. Tell us about your family, including your grandmother, Gertie, uh, whom you make special mention of uh, in the book. Uh, I know they were musically inclined because your father uh, played instruments and I think even played in a band. Um, there was a, um, a piano in the house. Uh, in fact, uh, you write in the book that your first musical recollections are earlier than that from the age of three, but you played the piano, and the first song you played was Smile, which was a, a big hit for Nat King Cole and so many others. So tell us about growing up in Manchester. Um, well, I was, as you say, it was a close-knit family, and my grandparents, um, Henry, came from Poland. My grandmother, Gertie, came from Romania. The roots were from Romania. And we were pretty orthodox. I went to shul every day with my grandfather from the age of about five, every day. So I, I remember going to this Romanian shul, and uh, I remember <laughs> on Mondays and Thursdays, the pot of whiskey everybody had after the thing, and I, I hated that. I subsequently became to like whiskey, but I didn't like it then. But I went to shul every day, as I say, with Shacharis every day. And my grandfather was in the box at the shul, quite important person there, the treasurer or something. And so it was a really orthodox shul, and I was a war baby, so I started going just after the war. And things were pretty somber. The music was very melancholy. It was, it was a very heavy, somber period. And I also went to the uh, Jewish day school, uh, which was an ultra-orthodox shul. Not school, sorry, not shul. And that was very interesting as well. Really, I was fascinated by the names of all the people that were from all over Europe, Pinker Schneck, Moshe McCanny, and the rabbi was Rabbi Aaron Troy. And, it was, and then he was ahead of the Beth Din as well at the time. It was really heavy duty, <laughs> very, very religious uh, upbringing from that point of view. And also my grandfather lived next door to Rabbi Goldich, who was also head of the Beit then, and further up the road, Rabbi Altman, who was the chief rabbi of Manchester. So it was really, 
really, you know, when if you went in a car on Shabbat, you know, you better watch all the curtains moving from w widows looking at what's going on. How can they go in the car? And it was it was it was heavy duty Jewishness. There was no kosher, of course, and uh, it was that was how I was brought up. So, I, as far as my um, knowledge of prayers and everything. I can remember everything even to this day. It was instilled in me at the age of five and six. And it was just there and it just went on forever. We then moved to another shoe. My parents' shoe was the Crumpsall shoe, which originally Rabbi Koppel Rosen was the head, was the rabbi in about 1948 onwards. And he, of course, became the head of um, Carmel College. And he was a wonderful speaker and a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful rabbi. Deep voice, very good looking, very charismatic, is the correct word for that. And so I went to them to Crumpsall Shul, had the most amazing choir, just unbelievable, by a choir master called Fabian Gonski. And he had all the, this fantastic choir. I mean, I love going to Shul just to hear the music. And Kol Nidra was just unbelievable. I mean, it was like a, going to listen to the opera. So all these musical things were going through my head at that time. I was also learning the piano with a teacher. And as I said, you, you said that, I did Smiling, which was in one flat F, I think, which I learned on the piano. But you were self-taught. You, you didn't want to go through the scales. You wanted to, to put I that aside that. and then go I right to study. I a teacher, then every damn day I was going five finger scales up and down every key, and I was going out of my mind. It wasn't, it wasn't fun, and I just couldn't cope with it eventually. It was so boring. It's a bit like accountancy. <laughs> but, so I started fiddling around and my auntie, who was my mother's sister, Sylvia, she was just a natural pianist. She could play anything by ear. And I just used to look at her with amazement. And I thought, well, one day I want to do that. And I sort of got into the habit of it, learned a few chords and I started improvising. So musically, and that, so that was that area of my my Jewishness and everything was very Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. And, you know, was, you had to be careful, you had to be quiet, you know, always very well behaved, never wanted to stand out in a crowd, you know. It was like a subconscious culture, which Israel got rid of when I got to Israel. I, I had a, there was a revolution in me and I couldn't believe what was going on. I can never forget that first time I went to Israel, well, I went on the kibbutz for three months, but I went to visit my cousins on a Friday night. The Friday night was very sacred. And the family was always there. Friday night was you don't go out on a Friday night. You're staying in. I went to Israel and we had this fantastic meal my cousins invited me to. And after they'd eaten, all of a sudden they brought all cards out. I, I couldn't believe it. They were playing cards. They were playing poker on a Friday night. Oh, what's going on here? I can't, all my life I've been not being able to go out on a Friday. I never knew that. And everybody playing cars and smoking. God knows what. It was like, it was a revelation. And because uh, when you went to Israel, you could speak out loud. You didn't have to talk in soft tones. Just to talk about, uh, to move to the music, because uh, who was it? Was it your father or your grandfather who was a big opera fan? My father. And, yes, my father had... A series of recordings of Tito Gobi doing Puccini uh, or La Bohème or every Aida, you name it, our house all day and night. All I heard was this bloody Puccini and Tito Gobi coming out of my ears. And then next door, we had a guy called Leo Rubel, and he was from Hungary. 
and he liked classical music. So whenever I went around there, it was Beethoven or Bach or whatever it was. So, and there was always a fight. He thought the opera was rubbish. My father liked the opera. And there's all these musicals. Wherever I went, I was in, it was like next door. So we we're always involved in this music going on. And it just infiltrated. And uh, I went to some wonderful operas with my father in Italy. I went to see Aida with 2,000 people. I mean, open their stage. I mean, it was unbelievable. These are all the things that sort of went into me, but I didn't realize at the time. Time, I just thought, well, it's just a noise. Well, they were all important inputs because you had the religious music. You had the popular music after the war. You had classical music, opera. Now, growing up as you did, right in the heart of the first great rock and roll era, I'm talking now as a teenager, uh, who were your favorite groups and singers at that time? It's a good question. It's, I'm trying to work out the time period because Bill Haley and the Comets started in 56. I would have been 16 then. Um, basically, a lot of it was all American, of course. You know, it was Neil Sedaka or whatever. Uh, Dion, I don't know. There was all the doo-wop era, all that sort of thing. All that music infiltrated. And uh, we heard that in coffee bars and in dance clubs and that, that sort of thing. I'm trying to think Elvis Presley, of course, was huge. I mean, very. I, I liked Elvis Presley a lot. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I just liked. I just liked music. Anything that was good, I liked. I really didn't like the crooners particularly, and I, I came to love Frank Sinatra eventually. But at the time, I thought, well, it's old man's music. You know, as you said, you were talking about Nat King Cole. You know, um, Johnny Ray. All those influences, we were inundated with American music, and it was pretty boring. And, to, and then, you, like you say, you had Elvis Presley and the rock and roll Bill Haley, and that sort of leveled off. I love Chuck Berry, by the way. I just thought he was tremendous. Um, Joe Lee Lewis, Fats Domino. That brings us to the, to the Beatles. Now, you say in your book, and it's, it's really quite, I think, quite insightful, um, <clears throat> that the Beatles not only brought us uh, great music, but also enabled British rock, including the what became the British invasion uh, of the American music scene, so to, for for British rock to have its own identity. In other words, until they came along, very few British artists had really made it in America. But from the Beatles, you write that British influence only grew and and never looked back. That's right. We took over the airwaves because. We, we only had American singers. English acts were singing with American accents. It was weird. You know, I, I mentioned the book, like, um, Rod Stewart says police. Well, we don't say police, we say police. I mean, there's no police. It's just ridiculous. But because it was American and it sounded good, maybe sounded like Lightning Hopkins or something, it was done. But once the Beatles came along, they could just sing with their own accents and their own sound. The humor was tremendous. The music was tremendous. The writing was tremendous. They were the perfect band, really. They were just incredible. Now, you've got a background in accounting. And I, I'm sure that, that even though it was limited in terms of the number of years, I'm sure it helped you as you moved into music management. So how do, you, how do, we, go from, how do we go from the music that you were hearing in the clubs, let's say, in Manchester to a music management career path? Um, well, it's fate, isn't it? I, I learned how to play the guitar and uh, I started writing songs and I wanted to get my songs 
to various artists. Um, the songs were sort of songs that weren't clever, but they were just poppy, like, you know, like a Freddie and the Dreamers song or a Jerry and the Pacemakers, How Do You Do What You Do? And I had all these songs which I wrote with a partner and I thought they were good and nobody else did them and couldn't get anywhere near them. So I was studying accountancy and I went to university to avoid the uh, five-year drudgery of an accountant. And in, in, my, in the defense of the accountant's office, I moved eventually to a firm called Binder Hamlin, where the, they represented the grades and they were the biggest entertainment agency in England, representing everything, the Palladium, Salk of the Town. They were the bee's knees. So they accommodated me. So when I started with getting a band, et cetera, they helped me. So and although the, the actual work was terrible, the people at the firm were lovely. Um, so I was writing these songs, getting nowhere, and I decided, well, I must get my own band. Maybe they'll do my songs. So that's how that started. And we put a, an, an advert in the Manchester Evening News, we're looking for a band, et cetera. And I ended up in this Churchill and Davey, which is a tiny district in Manchester where there was a band playing. So um, I went there and they were playing Chuck Berry. I saw us standing there. All the, every band did the same set. It was like, you know, as it happens, they did Business Brown, you've got a lovely daughter in there, which is totally different to everything else. But, um, I went there, and after each number, the stage was charged. Everybody went flying. Girls were screaming, and I thought I'd won the National Lottery. I thought, this is unbelievable. I subsequently found out that they planted people in the audience. They told the audience that some big American manager was coming to look at them, and would they participate in the applause and make sure there was an atmosphere. So, and that band was Herman and the Hermits. So that was extraordinarily lucky. So you were in your early 20s uh, yeah. when you uh, tell us about how, how that happened. So originally, Peter Noon was not in the group, the original group, correct? He was the when I saw him that night. Yes, he was there. But originally he was in Coronation Street, which was a huge TV soap in England, the biggest. And he was uh, Len Fairclough's son, one of the lead characters in it. So he had an acting experience when he was 12. He was bubbly. He looked great. And um, he was very, he was very cheeky. Well, he still is. He's amazing. Now. I mean, he's a great entertainer. And um, as I say, I was lucky that that was the band that I saw. I went back to his house. I started fiddling around on the piano, playing Jerry Lee Lewis. And he said, would you like to join the band? I said, no, I want to manage the band. And I want you to do my music. <laughs> Ended up with a B-side, at least, that I'm into something good. And in those days, it was so ridiculous that anybody that wrote the B-side got the same mechanicals as the person that wrote the A-side. So I shared the royalties with Goffin and King, some minor writers. <laughs> I was very lucky there. And my father was... You can't, very... you can't, be, you can't be in better company than, than Goffin and King. Now, you, you write in the book, um, I'm Into Something Good, about EMI record producer, legend, Mickey Most, and the role that he had in choosing music for artists that were under his uh, supervision. But... Your own, your own sense of what could sell was certainly evident at every turn. And Herman's Hermits took off like a rocket. Each hit, and there were so many, uh, I'm Into Something Good, uh, No Milk Today, There's a Kind of Hush, Listen People, and of course, Henry VIII, I Am, and Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. Each one was different than the other. So to what, no, no derivative uh, music there. So to what do you attribute the tremendous 
following that Herman's Hermits Herm, uh, had. Uh, was it the music? Was it Peter Noon or was it both? It was, it was definitely both. I mean, Mickey Most had a wonderful ear. He could pick something. I mean, House the Rising Sun for the animal classic. You know what I mean? He had a band called Hot Chocolate. Amazing. For us, he got, we used Sam Cooke, Wonderful World, Silhouettes from the Rays, um, Goffin King. But there was one derivative one. That was the second record in England called Show Me Girl, which was also written by Goffin King, which subsequently wasn't a big hit. <laughs> this, of course, everybody, all my friends used to say, what are you wasting your time with that band for? They're a load of rubbish. Meanwhile, I got a full date sheet for them. But um, they, And then when they had the hit, all these friends, it's the kind of Jewish, Manchester, sarcastic, post-war, you know, humour. Oh, what are you wasting your time for? Get a proper job. Become an accountant. By the way, my idea of becoming an accountant was not to be an accountant. I wanted to be a stockbroker, and there were no Jewish stockbrokers. There was maybe one, Navarro, I don't know. But I, my idea was I'm going to become a bloody stockbroker because I was mad on shares, losing fortunes even in those days on options and God knows what. Every time, it was just in my blood, you know. It just And that was my – I was never going to go into the music business. This just ha happened to happen. And then while I'm doing my finals of my you know, of a crash course on accountancy – Herman's Herman's record is zooming up the charts in America, and I'm phoning MGM, speaking to A&M from a payphone, and it just got out of hand. And I said to my father, "Look, I've got to let me let me have a go at this." And meanwhile, Epstein had become an, an icon, and I thought, "Well, if he can do it with no musical background, with no no experience, why couldn't I? And if Liverpool can do it, why can't Manchester do it? We hate Liverpool anyhow." So. <laughs> <laughs> everything was going to be centered around Manchester anyhow. So that was all part of the plan. Well, speaking of, of Manchester, tell us about your career long, lifelong partnership and friendship with songwriter and fellow Mancunian, Graham Goldman, um, who gave us so many memorable hits for the Yardbirds, the Hollies, Herman's Hermits, and of course, 10CC. Yeah, well, um, Graham was at a band called The Whirlwinds, which is a Jewish band. This was in probably 1961 or 62. And for some reason, which I, I still don't understand now, I used to go and watch them. I think there was a, a music night at the Jewish Lives Brigade, and they used to play this band, The Whirlwinds. They played all fantastic um, Italian hits, Marino Marini and Volare, all those type of music, which... I loved at the time, and they were the only people that played it. So and they were per they were very good. Graham was in the band, wonderful, wonderful guitarist. They all were great, great singers, and used to finish with Alexander's Ragtime Band with all my hands going like that. Um, yeah, they, they was just an amazing band. They had an awful manager. Well, I say an awful manager. They had an unapproachable manager. What the hell I was doing there, or what, why I was there, I don't know. And I asked Phil Cohen who lives in Israel, was the lead singer of the band a few weeks ago, I said, why was I there? I wasn't in the music business. I had nothing to do with it. Why was I watching you two years before I even got in the business? And he said, we don't know. We said, we saw you there all the time, and we wondered who you were. And he said, I was the only person that knew you, because I played football with you, and I knew you from football. All the rest of the band didn't even know you. So that, that was, I still can't work out why I was there. But I always, Graham lived very near to me within a t uh, half a mile. All of us lived in the, within three miles, Kevin Godley, Law Cream, myself, Graham, we're all within 
two mile radius. And everybody knew everybody else because it's a ghetto. So, you, you know, everybody lived, you know, one thing I didn't mention earlier on, which is everybody from the family lived on our street. It was under 22, 26, 28, you know, all different members of the family. So it was like a, it was so close. You know, you're always in each other's house. And I, anyhow, so I approached, I started to get some success with Herman's Hermits about two years later. The, the, the um, whirlwinds, although they had a good date sheet, they never seemed to get in anywhere. They had a few records put out, and I don't, don't think they were hits. And I, I, I got talking to Graham and said, well, why don't you let me have a go with you? And I had some success with Herman's Hermits. I was treated quite seriously. And I got very friendly with Graham. And uh, he's, I signed a development deal with me. I gave him a retainer, and I said, why don't you write songs? And he started writing songs. And I used to go around to his house every day from nine to five. It was like an office. And we used to write songs together. I used to edit things. You know, he'd come up with a song and I'd say, well, well, try something else, especially in For Your Love, when it came to the break and the rhythm. Oh, why don't we try something else? And he comes up with it. And it was, and also House uh, For Your Love, and I said, why don't we do something on the... Um, House of Rising Sun chords, and he surreptitiously changed the last chord minimally and then wrote the song on those chords, and it worked like that was a treat, and that was, that was obviously a huge hit. And I, I just, I was, I was very close with Graham, that close that we became brother-in-laws. We both married sisters. So, I mean, we was like, not only was he songwriter and friend, brother, this, that, and the other. No, it was just incredible relationship, which lasted a long time before it finished, but there it is. Most, most groups, uh, even popular ones like Herman's, Hermits, have a shelf life. Um, Peter Noon went on to uh, perform as a, a single act, but for years he's been a regular fixture on satellite radio, uh, PBS. Um, now, following the breakup of Herman's Hermits, you had a tremendous second act in management with the group 10CC. Uh, tell us about the group. What made the sound so distinct and, and memorable? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, I'm Not In Love and The Things We Do For Love um, off the top of my head, but there are so many others. Uh, tell us about 10CC. I started involved, being involved with Kevin Lowell in 1964. At the same time, I was involved with Graham. Kevin Lowell wrote beautiful songs and again, there was no success with them. It was rather like when I was writing songs, we were getting beautiful songs. Well, their songs were beautiful, mine were, but they were beautiful songs and we got nowhere with them. But they were, they were there and I used to help them in the way they did a mural at my house, which took 12 weeks for them to do and I paid them a retainer to do it. They were always doing artistic things. They came from artistic college. They were very, very talented, avant-garde. And Graham was writing hit after hit at the time. Um, incidentally, you said I went from um, Herman's Hermits to 10CC, but really the, after Herman's Hermits, I think um, Tony Christie was our next big act. And then we went to 10CC. But um, going back to 10CC, because that was so important, Eric was in the Mindbenders. He's had a hit. Um, we... I joined forces with Danny Vitesh to form Kennedy Street Enterprises. He had a load of acts. And between us, we had the one, two, and three in Billboard in 1965. And that, that again, it's, but I'm saying that because the mime, Wayne Fontana of the Mindbenders, whom Eric was the lead singer was, was in that before he left that, became the Mindbenders. And then 
it all evolved. So I had Graham, who wrote hit after hit, and I work with every day. Kevin Law was churning out hits, doing things, artwork, murals, paintings, designs for programs on TV, all sorts of things like that. And then we got into Strawberry Studio because Eric wanted to have a studio in Manchester and everything we wanted to do was to be in Manchester and not to leave Manchester and go to London to record. So they developed Strawberry Studios. And once they've got that going, then they had to do all the experimentation on sound. And Kevin Lowell and Eric came up with a track called Neanderthal Man, which was done when they were trying to test drum sounds out in the studio. And it became a hit, a huge hit in Europe. And so that started that. Then Graham was asked to join them to do an opening set with the Moody Blues on a tour. And then they got together. And I, in the meantime, kept trying to do records with all of them. They were put out as different names, great songs like There Ain't No Mbopo, uh, People Passing By, all sort of obscure songs under different names trying to get hits. And none of it really worked. And then finally, I, because of Tony Christie, I managed to acquire Neil Sudaka, which was quite an interesting story. Um, I, um, I was looking for, I, I went to, um, you asked me before, who do I like in, this, in the early days? And I said, and Neil Sudaka was one of the people I liked. And I went into the Brill Building with Donny Kirchner, who was a friend of mine. And um, I said, what ever happened to Neil Sudaka? He said, oh, he's upstairs. He said, do you want to meet him? I said, yeah, I'd like to meet him. That's really nice. I went up with Carol, my wife, into this little room, which is about nine foot by six foot with an upright piano, and there's Neil. So Donnie said, would you play some of your new songs? So I played a few songs, and the last one was, is this the way to my Marillo? I said, that's fantastic. I want that. So the, they looked at each other. Neil didn't like it particularly. Donnie Kirshner didn't see it. But I had to keep, and I went back to England, and my wife said, get on the phone, get that demo. I got the demo got down to London. The producers of Tony Christie did it the next day. It went in the charts to number 18, which was very disappointing. But 20 years later, as a charity record, because of a video done by a comedian called Peter Kay, it was the biggest record of 2004. It was number one for about 12 weeks. So now Neil Sedaka, Danny Kirshner couldn't believe it. He said, I thought I had this, but that's tremendous. Thank you very much. And I said, well, why don't you let Neil come and do some recording over in the studio? I've got all these fantastic musicians. 10CC hadn't evolved. They're all individual. He knew about Graham Boomer because he'd had so many hits. But the rest were kind of, they didn't know God and Cream from Adam. So, um, all right, we'll go and do, we'll, we'll try and do a session there. Let's do three numbers there. Well, he came over to do three numbers and he did two albums there. And he was amazing, Neil Stark. He used to go in the morning, in the morning and he, before the session, He'd go on the piano and he'd play Calendar Girl, Breaking Up His Heart, and all of 10CC were sitting on the floor with me and we're getting this concert before we start. And because I used to, on Sunday morning, I used to take bagels and locks because he loved that. And we were the best bagels in the world in Manchester. The best smoked salmon you can name from a shop called Titanic, named after somebody's grandparents that died in the Titanic or something. And it was, it was incredible. And you know what? Instead of giving me a proper credit on the album, because I did so much for Neil, it's Bagels and Locked Harvey. <laughs> but you know, you, you write about this, you write about this in your book, where Sadaka comes and he, he does these 
albums. Now, one of the albums was, and one of the, the songs from that album became a very big hit and really kind of revived his career, and that was Solitaire, yeah, which, which was a, a great beautiful, song. Beautiful words. Oh, there's a mar marvelous song. But the, the, the other thing, <laughs> he came round to our house and uh, in Singleton Road, North Manchester, and I had a piano. Yeah, I did have a piano. I think I had a piano put in specially because <laughs> whenever he went out to be a piano. But anyway, he, he saw, I had a demo of the Trolla Days Are Over, which is a song relating to him and Howie Greenfield splitting up because the Trolla Days Are Over. And he plays it, and I play it. I said, do you want to hear the demo? I've just got it now. And, he's, and I'm sitting in the room with my two kids who are about five and 11, Paul and Philip, and Carol. And Neil starts crying in the middle of the song, really crying, serious crying. The kids are in hysterics now. And Carol has to get them out of the room. I shut them out because they've never seen a man cry like that probably before. And then Neil at the end of the said to me, did I write that? I said, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> but just, just for, to go back um, to 10CC, um, what, what was it? about that sound for you. I'm not in love. It's, it's such a, it's such a haunting um, and, and moving song. Um, what, what was it that produced that really very unique sound? Well, I always had to find music hits for all my acts, all Mickey most did. Once I got 10CC in the studio and they were in their own studio, they worked on it. They had the free studio time because they worked on downtime. If people were recording and the studio was flat, they go in and record. So they had a lot of time to do experimentation in sound. And they would deliver me the most amazing tracks. I mean, Rubber Bullets, which wasn't a hit in America, it was a superb track. Um, Wall Street Shovel. They had about 12 hit, well, 12 hits in England before anything really had happened in America. And then one day I went and started on a new album. And I sat down and they said, we've got a new track. And I listened to I'm Not In Love, unmixed in the studio and it was the most astonishing feeling I ever had it, it was the atmosphere of the record in that studio it just it made you shiver and that was just a masterpiece it was the involvement of the fusion of Kevin Lowell who were humorous artistic avant-garde crazy and and Eric and Graham who were the, the establishment of the band traditional pop hits and that together Eric was a brilliant engineer, so the sounds are all coned. It was really a self-contained unit. I mean, more than anybody else. They didn't have a George Martin or anybody who was inside the band. And there were obviously a lot of tension between the four of them because they were very different people. And, you know, always, there was, I don't know what went on because I just was sitting pretty. I was a manager who was being delivered beautiful music all the time. That was that did stand out though, and I knew that was going to be an absolute iconic song, definitely, and uh, it was. Uh, well, Harvey, it wasn't only music. You've managed some noteworthy soccer or football, um, uh, as you would say, stars. Some of England's leading uh, pool or snooker, as you would say, uh, players. What led you into that side of management, particularly in the 1980s? And, and what was it like? It was a totally was it a totally different world, or were there similarities between the music business and and that? There were similarities, but um, what had happened was the punk revolution arrived, and everybody was having uh, to change their 
thoughts about music. They didn't like the overindulgent, rich, capitalistic, 10cc, Pink Floyd, whoever it was, they were out. It was the Sex Pistols, the Fall, whatever. Uh, Stranglers, you know, it was a new revolution. I thought, hey, well, they're not gonna play our music. We're, we're getting less popular. And I wanted to do something else. I always wanted to expand the business in different ways. It was just part of me. And I wanted to get into sports. So a friend of mine had um, a snooker hall and one of the employees of the firm, Roy Speak, he was a very good snooker player. And he introduced me to this guy. And this guy was actually Alex Higgins' best friend, but there was Jimmy Whirlwind White, who was a 21-year-old, amazing snooker player, fastest thing you've ever seen, the most brilliant player. And um, I decided, well, well, I'll try and go into that. And it's difficult for me to describe to an American audience what snooker was like, but it was huge. It was on TV day and night. It was very popular. And all the people had dinner suits on with bow ties, all looked like penguins. And I thought, right, we've got this kid here and uh, we're going to redo his image. We're going to change the face of snooker, which we did. So I got... um, I just did everything for him. I want him to have a punk hairstyle, but I was voted out by the rest of the people in my company saying, no, no, we're not going to go with that. But we did change his hairstyle. And I'm in the south of France with my wife, and I see a beautiful hands tooth dinner suit in a place called Claude Bonucci. It was just an amazing dinner suit. I got the dinner suit. And Carol had to measure before we went to the France. I knew I was going to get a suit in France for him. Carol had to measure. Jimmy White like a tailor. <laughs> it's hysterical. He's standing on a box and Carol's measuring his inside leg. And I'm killing myself. And it was just a very funny situation. Took the suit back, he looked like a million dollars in it. I then went to Patrick Litchfield, Lord Litchfield, who'd just taken the photographs of the royal wedding of uh, Charles and Diana. And he was the biggest photographer in England. I got him to do photographs. And then I stuck him on the, stuck him on the TV and everybody, woo! This is, this is different, you know, somebody different. And he got thrashed 9-0 by um, the reigning champion, Steve Davis, who was a very solid player. And uh, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll do the interview afterwards. I don't want to, he, he can't put a 21-year-old in front of, after he being 9-0 to have an interview with a, a sarcastic. And the first question he said was this guy called David Vine. He says, do you really think you've helped? trying to change the image of somebody. Wouldn't it have been better if he'd have sort of concentrated on his snooker? And I said, well, I saw you getting your makeup on before you came on this program. <laughs> <laughs> Which stage, that was the end of that. I just put it so far down. He, didn't, he couldn't recover that. It was very polite after that. It was the end of that. But it was, Jimmy White was a wild man. Yes. Similarities, yes. The similarities were drink, drugs, Whatever you, the same drug dealers are always in the bloody halls. You know, you, you, you've seen them all before at the, at the rock concerts, you've seen them there. So yes, but the, the snooker player has to, in the inverted commas, be reasonably fit to be able to play. It didn't apply to Higgins and Jimmy White because they were, they were just ludicrous. They, they, they had big drinking problems. They, the parents were all drinkers. They were serious. I mean, in those days, it wasn't so much drugs. I mean, drink was the big problem then. I, uh, if I went into the lawyer's office, lawyer's office at nine o'clock in the morning, they're pouring a huge scotch in a 
in a waterford glass with ice in it. It's nine in the morning. You know, there were, and Irvin Landau was my um, a lovely man. <laughs> he was the solicitor. And they used to like hard scotch. My God. And so the bands and everybody were on scotch. That's all that they did. Well, I'm trying to think what else was like. The other thing that was interesting was the publicity angle. We got more publicity in snooker in six weeks than I had in 20 years with excessive rock stars. It was such big business. And Alex Higgins, he used to, he said, I'm not doing that interview, Harvey. So why not? He says, I want 600 pounds for that. Now, I would have torn my shirt off to get a, an interview with the Times with Peter Noon. And Alex Higgins charges the Times and gets the money. So it sort of taught me something. But all that publicity that we've given free to the newspaper, here's somebody that's got a different angle on it. It was a crazy man. You, you must have missed a big income stream then all of those years by not charging for the interviews. Absolutely unbelievable. No, because you needed you needed the you needed the press to get you needed the press, but the press needed the snooker stories because that was the thing of the moment. It's probably the same in America with uh, football or whatever. So the craver crazy moment. But uh, let me just uh, let me just ask one one final question before we close and. Uh, really, you've you've covered decades of of a business that that changes, it waxes, it wanes. What made the music business that you were deeply involved in, and the business today, so how does it differ? The, the difference is well. First of all, in the sixties, um, the song was the most important thing. So it wasn't a question of a band writing their own music. They used to get songs from songwriters, as Tim Panali. So there's a wealth of wonderful music where you could get it to an artist and they would do it. Like Goffin King got, I'm just something good to us. Like, that was great. Um, then there was a self-written stuff that came afterwards, which wasn't quite the same. It wasn't as singles orientated. It was more album orientated. Then we got into all different types of, um, well, it's such a long time. I've been doing it for so long. The 60s was the time of the songs. The 70s was the time of the producers. The 80s was punk. The 90s was electronic. Everything moved along. But obviously the revolution of social media in the, this century has completely blasted everything away. Record companies are very slow to realize the potential of all the new inventions and the new sort of ways of getting things. And everything now is geared to merchandising, packaging, streaming. In those days, all I wanted was a good song, like House of the Rising Sun. You've got a hit, the radio would play it. You didn't need a million streams to get signed. You just had to be good. And you did a good live set. I don't think that happens today. Everything is sort of, you know, packaged, merchandise, accountants deciding what risks to take, what not to take. It's a very different business to what it was in, in the early days. And the future, in my opinion, they all talk about AI, what the hell's going to happen? Well, I think in 50 years' time, there will be, not saying robots, but there will be alternative music production because the ABBA won't be around in 50 years time but you might have some kind of ABBA visual 
sound thing so that people, instead of going to an orchestra and hearing Beethoven, they'll go and see what was 100 years ago, the music of that day presented through whatever technology comes along. The brilliance of the musician will have to adapt to whatever happens. There will be problems with rights and all that sort of thing, and people getting paranoid. But we had all that with streaming. And yet now well, everybody all of listens this, to music from the, on the, uh, they, don't listen, they don't buy records, do they? Well, all of this and so much more can be found in Harvey Lisberg's fascinating memoir. Here it is. I'm into something good. My life managing 10cc, Herman's Hermits, and many more, which is out now. And it's available wherever you purchase books. Very nice speaking with you, Harvey. Really, it's, it's been great. Uh, I say this as a fan, not only as the host of this program. Uh, thanks again for all of the great music. Uh, that you and your bands uh, brought to millions of uh, fans and listeners all over the world. And thanks for being with us on this program. It's been a great pleasure, and I know you do a great job. And thanks for well, that. Well, thank you again to my guest, Harvey Lisberg, for joining us, and to you for tuning in to our podcast, Conversations with B'nai Brith. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. And if you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and share this episode with friends and others. For all of our latest content, and if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai Brith wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and like us on Facebook. For my guest, Harvey Lisberg, this is your host, Dan Mariashin. Thanks for being with us. Take care, everyone.